Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. We would like to get into some listener feedback this season, so if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything even tangentially related to the podcast, you can send an email to Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S, at tracknerds.com, or hit me up on Twitter, where my handle is, at tracknerds. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Yeah, so with the 2000 film traffic here today, it's another one that does not deal with specific historical events per se, but it does heavily deal with a specific issue that is still an issue to today and was kind of either oh the big peak as far as being in the cultural zeitgeist was kind of the 1980s war on drugs with a big push with Nancy Reagan and all that and then the D.A.R.E. program and that's well, of course, I was also in grade school at that time. So, but that feels mm-hmm. like culturally, when the war, quote unquote, war on drugs, kind of started to accelerate, and was it, it was a problem yeah. maybe we would talk about more up front. I think it started with Nixon, though, right? And like this in the seventies, he was like the first person to start, you know, doing like the schedules, different schedules of drugs and stuff. True, but for but for sure, it, it did it did get uh, yeah with with the Nancy Reagan and the. And dare and everything in the 80s was definitely like the heyday of of the war on drugs. Right, because you could even go back further to when they were all outlawed in the first place. Yeah, and, but it, yeah, it's it's still a huge problem today. And I just want to be clear, I don't I don't just mean drugs are a huge problem. I mean the war on drugs is a huge problem. <laughs> right, and that's something that I feel like is even shifted since maybe even this movie came out 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I think if you redo a movie traffic today. There's a way different philosophical spin on it than there is yeah. in this 2000 film. Yep. So for those for those who aren't familiar with it, this is this is a very solid movie. I don't think it's a great movie, but it's it's very solid. It was the best picture nominee, and it does an interesting job of showing not just the war on drugs, but the world of drugs from essentially every level. So you right. have. The, yeah, the addicts, the dealers, mm-hmm. the Michael Douglas's character is hired to be the new drug czar in the United States, kind of in, in charge right. of leading it. You go to Mexico where you see the people in the cartels and uh, Benicio Del Toro. And Mexican cops, too. Benicio Del Toro plays a Mexican cop, and he actually won uh, Oscar for Best Supporting Actor here. And then you see a dealer in the United States who's kind of in charge of basically importing or smuggling the drugs in the United States. And so it's... It's got all levels of people that are affected by this, and and there's there's the three main storylines that they follow. Ish one is Michael Douglas, who is kind of mm-hmm. learning about the war on drugs and his new role in the government, while also dealing with a daughter who is a drug user in high school. That's one storyline. Yeah. One is Catherine Zeta Jones as the wife of the big U.S. drug dealer bringing stuff into San Diego and La Jolla. And him getting arrested is kind of then one plot and her dealing with that because she didn't know he was a dealer. And then Benicio Del Toro's storyline in Mexico where he kind of at first busts some dealers and smugglers and then gets kind of wrapped up in with this general who's going to get appointed as the new Mexican drug czar. But he's the Mm -hmm. kind of the secret is he's actually working with one of the cartels to try to push out another cartel. And so... Three significant storylines, so it actually makes the runtime go by pretty quick because you're almost watching three movies, mm-hmm. but it's also neat how the storylines will overlap and different characters show up yeah. in the characters' storylines in a way that right. doesn't feel too forced. And mm-hmm. so it's really solid. I, I do like this movie a lot, and 
Don Cheadle, I thought, kind of stole the show. I don't know why. I think he's just kind of more interesting on screen than some of the other people here. And he just kind of yeah. stood out to me. And I, so this movie, and I, I don't know, it, it probably does. Uh, is this movie related in any way to Crash? It's a similar kind of feel as far as filmmaking goes, but it's different writers right. and directors. Okay, right. So I, I think in Crash, because Don Cheadle is also, he's a cop in this movie. He's like a DEA agent. And then he's also a cop in Crash. Okay, but yeah, different writer, different director. I mean, but as far as the flow of the story with the different narratives that kind of overlap, yeah, I, yeah, very similar. I would say, yeah, which I don't, I don't really. I think I like this movie better than Crash. I would probably agree, and I don't know, maybe it's just because I find Don Cheadle so charismatic, but he does kind of steal the show in that movie as well. Yeah, I think he's kind of underused as an actor in general. I mean, yeah, he does. He works a lot, and everyone knows who he is. But mm-hmm. yeah, he, I think he's, yeah, he's just really, really good, really pops on screen. Man, did we already kind of talk about everything? <laughs> like. I was kind of planning on getting into our own thoughts on this. So it's complicated. And kind of the, the realization that Michael Douglas's character does come to by the end doesn't quite match my sentiment. But he, he kind of is giving his speech as, you know, uh, the debut to the press with his new position in the government as drugs are. And then it, it actually walks out of the press conference basically saying, I can't do this. If there's a war on drugs, that means there's a war on the people who do drugs, which is our friends and family. And I don't see how you declare right. war on your family, which I think is kind of maybe a hokey way to see it because I'm against the war on drugs for a different reason than that specific one. And so it's it's complicated. But let's go ahead and talk about the complicated. And maybe we this might end up just being yours and I, your and I, opi- your and I's. How do you say that? Where do you put the apostrophe? <laughs> our um, opinion. This might just end up being no, our opinion. Yeah, you could do that. Just say our. <laughs> okay. Well, but then opinion is singular and it should be plural. Our opinions? Yeah, there it is. <laughs> so, our, yeah, our opinions. Okay. <laughs> I probably got to keep that in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I don't see why the United States has not seen it as being so similar to prohibition in the 1920s, where by outlawing something, you give all the power to the criminals. And the reason there are these drug lords and, you know, these just rich criminals who are cutthroat and doing their own thing is because it's an illegal trade. So if you have a, it's, it's basic, basic economy. Yeah. I watched a, a Ted talk by a guy, Dr. Ethan Nadelman, and he, in, in the middle of this Ted talk, he says, um, and this is a, a quote from him. Uh, I didn't come up with this. But he said, people tend to think of prohibition as the ultimate form of regulation when, in fact, it represents the abdication of regulation with criminals filling the void. Ah, perfect. And yeah. I had never really, I mean, I, obviously, you learn about, you know, alcohol prohibition and how that was a massive, massive failure. But for some reason, you're right. We don't see this as the same thing. And so when you have, you know, with alcohol prohibition, they tried to make you know, consumption and sale of alcohol illegal, and it didn't work. And it was a huge failure. And it basically, you know, not created, but way enhanced organized crime in the United States. And I don't see why the same thing hasn't happened with this. For some reason, this has gone on for almost 50 years. And it's still the same, you know, the policies and the the actions being taken by the state are the same more or less as they were 50 years ago. The public sentiment is shifting, though, of course, and the idea of treating drug right. users as victims of addiction versus straight up criminals. We're, we're shifting better, but you're right. We're still a long ways away from what we kind of know we should be. In, in the, right. In, in, the, in the eyes of the public, for sure, 
you know, but I legislation hasn't caught up with that. Yeah, the legislation hasn't, and it is funny in that same TED talk he talks about. Uh, you know, it, it used to be that like drug reform was the thing that no one could get behind. Everyone, you know, it was basically a, a bipartisan. Uh, you had bipartisan support for cracking down more on drugs, especially right. when you talk about, right. like you said, back in the 80s, you know, making harsher sentencing and, and mandatory minimums and stuff like that. But but now it's almost the opposite, like maybe not necessarily politicians, but for sure, like just your run of the mill center left, your run of the mill center right can all agree the war on drugs is bad and legalization is probably the answer at least for a lot of it. Well, especially, and also obviously our country has shifted significantly since this movie came out 20 years ago when it comes to marijuana. And right. most of the country, I don't, well, actually, is it about 50-50 on medical marijuana being legal now? Yeah, I think it's 50-50 roughly on, on medical marijuana being legal. And then about five to 10 states have gone full on recreational as mm-hmm. well? Yep, yep. And I, I think it's it's only a matter of time before Correct. marijuana is completely legal, I, like even federally. Correct. There are a lot of places, even if they're not changing the legislation, they're doing the decriminalization or basically they don't crack down on it. So it's like it's still technically right. illegal on paper, but we're going to stop right. seeking out the people who are, are doing it. Yeah. And again, I couldn't care less. About, I mean, I don't, I don't even drink. I've never done drugs. Right. But at the same yep. time, I don't see any reason or any evidence that shows that marijuana is not just not worse than alcohol. It's less of an issue than alcohol. Like... Right. My understanding, and again, this is this from information I've you know heard over several years, and I've never heard it contradicted, is that there are zero reported marijuana overdose deaths ever because you can't overdose on marijuana versus people die of alcohol poisoning on a regular basis. And yes, the line I always use is people don't get high and beat their kids. I'm not saying there's not negative repercussions if you're stoned, and obviously you should not be. You still get a DUI and all those kinds of things. But if you're going to compare alcohol to marijuana. It's no contest. Alcohol is objectively a worse substance. Right. And so prohibition kind of back in the 20s, though, the reason it didn't work is you're basically telling General Joe Schmo worker getting off from work at the factory or the office that he was a criminal by having a beer. And so the public just didn't accept it, which kept the demand high, which gave the criminals all the power. And marijuana has kind of slowly been... The same thing, where it's kind of gone to, you know, a hippie drug or whatever to the 60s. Or, of course, it's outlawed in the first place because it was associated with minority usage. And it was kind of a racist mm-hmm. thing to make it illegal in the first place. Well, that's that's kind of the case with just about all initial prohibition of drug laws. True, but some of those are harsher than marijuana. Right. But even, you know, like way, way back in the day, I'm, you know, I'm talking like 1800s, right, you right. know, turn of the century times. Your, your main demographic of drug users is like middle age, middle class white people mm. you know and and you know, even uh like coca-cola had legit cocaine in it until Correct. 1900 and it wasn't until those drug and their use had started to be associated with different minority groups so like you know chinese railroad workers using opiates or right. southern uh african americans using cocaine or mexican immigrants using marijuana when the drug was associated with a minority group that was when the prohibition laws started to get implemented right and then the sad stat today is that so the two biggest lobbying groups against the legalization of marijuana are 
the pharmaceutical industry, who would rather you use mm-hmm. their stuff than marijuana that's yep. way cheaper, and the for-profit prison industry that wants to keep locking up those people for marijuana offenses. So yep. if those are the two biggest reasons those laws aren't getting changed, that kind of tells you everything you need to know about about the issue. And that doesn't even get yeah. to harder stuff than marijuana. But marijuana specifically, frankly, should be legal, regulated, and taxed. And right. you save so much money on every end. You bring in more revenue. And even even beyond marijuana, just in general, recreational drug legalization would solve so many problems. And th- there are concerns about increased use. and Which Colorado has not had. No, no, no. I, I'm talking about just drugs across the board. Correct. Okay, um, fair. And, 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 and I, I hear that. Like, I can, I can see how that's a concern. But when you look at the tax revenue you get from it, the fact that you, you reduce issues with um, adulterated drugs, so like people using heroin that's has Not clean fentanyl or, or some yeah. other something in it, you can increase your tax revenue by taxing that and then also decrease the amount of money that you're spending on you know this uh, useless war right. on drugs right. you can spend that money on other stuff and it's kind of, it's, it's it's so obvious that it's infuriating right and it, and the fact that you treat it like like it's something different when it's it's no, it's exactly the same it's no different than any other commodities market like alcohol tobacco coffee sugar all things that are objectively bad for you and you know people use just and are addicted to just like they would be addicted to any other drug but all those things are legal but for some reason you know the the drugs is the thing that is is being combated and it's when you try to uh focus on the supply side of the equation of supply and demand without decreasing the demand all that happens is the price goes up and drugs are not price sensitive people will pay for drugs no matter what because they're addicted to them you're only helping you know the cartels there you go that's a good way to put it and yeah so so that's the reason too we talk about the the opioid problem in the united states right now is because people are getting addicted to prescription legal pain medication and then in the Mm -hmm. absence of that are filling that void with illegal substances. So, yes, I understand the argument for, well, we don't want our kids to access these controlled substances. Absolutely. We don't want your kids taking legal prescription painkillers either, do you? So, yes, we treat it like any controlled controlled substance. The the problem is, though, is that you you get prescribed an opiate, you get addicted to it, then the prescription runs out or the doctor says, well, you don't need this anymore. But there's nowhere there's there's nowhere for you to go to get off of it. Right. Basically, your only recourse is to go and try and find heroin. Right. Whereas if you could have just smoked weed in the first place, or taken an edible and had that had a similar level of pain relief without right. the addiction, or, or even even something. And I know this is going to sound absolutely loco, crazy, insane to some people, but there are. European countries, Switzerland is probably like the the biggest, most well known one. That their response to you know a a heroin use epidemic where people are overdosing, people are getting infections, people are getting HIV. Instead of you know cracking down and, and making it a big deal criminally, they set up basically like heroin help centers. So people could go there; they could actually get free heroin clean needles, use heroin under medical supervision, 
But at the same time, when they're in those places, they have access to social workers. They have access to counseling. They have access to people helping them find jobs and find housing. And all that's cheaper than fighting the war on drugs. Right. And And that approach costs less money and also works because in Switzerland, there was a drop in drug related crime. Two thirds of the people that went to these places that were getting free heroin from the government ended up getting regular jobs and getting off, you know, basically kicking the addiction. And today, 70% of heroin users in Switzerland end up seeking treatment for that addiction at these help centers. Right. You're not losing people to uh, Portugal, similarly, has decriminalized drugs and yeah. basically treats it as mm-hmm. a uh, public health issue, not a criminal issue. Yep. And yeah. it's just a smarter way to handle the whole problem from every front, but that we just don't have the political will, the education, and we're fighting well, the pharmaceutical industry. Because, and we've been we've been fighting this war on drugs for so long. It's been fifty years that it's it's a sunk loss thing or whatever. Yeah. Well, that, but also, I mean, any politician who comes out at you know who who says part of their platform is that they are pro the government giving people free heroin like they're going to get slaughtered in an election because correct it's like oh oh you give people free heroin that's insane that's crazy why would you do that it's like well it's it's more than just giving people free heroin like it's that's not right and again the people come back to the cost issue is like we're already spending money we're just gonna spend it differently yep yeah and it'll be less we're gonna spend less money yeah. differently and have a better outcome than the way you want to handle right. it currently yeah and there's there's also like a big kind of a hypocrisy aspect to it as well. Like when you look at seemingly the criminal justice system has no problem incarcerating people for possession or, you know, or just sale, basically nonviolent drug offenses, they have no problem locking people up for that. But then you look at like giant banks that are actively helping or at the, at the very least, you know, turning a blind eye to financial support for cartels, right? Um, specifically, HSBC uh, ignored billions of dollars coming from That's the Sinaloa right. cartel. And there's actually a story about how the cartels ended up making boxes that were the exact dimensions of the slots at the uh, the teller slots, so that they could fill them up to you know as full as they could go, so they could efficiently transfer, like deposit as much money as possible. No one from HSBC, by the way, went to jail, and I think they got fined like one point nine million dollars or billion dollars, which sounds like a lot, but it's like just a few weeks of uh, revenue for that bank. And then also Wachovia, the bank, accepted four hundred twenty billion dollars from what the Justice Department described as suspicious Mexican sources without verifying the origin of any of that money. And again, no, no prosecutions. No one spent a day in jail for any of that. Right, and which which is doing more harm to society? If we're going to lock up people who harm do harm to society, is it a nonviolent drug dealer? Especially when we're talking about like specifically a pot dealer, right? Versus a bank that's covering up for her cartel, who's literally murdering people and putting a lot more product out on the streets and right. But how much money do does your local pot dealer have to lobby the government exactly. versus HSBC and Wachovia? So the, the war on drugs is a big issue, but it's also tied to a lot of other big issues, and it's all they all kind of exacerbate each other. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And we've kind of strayed away from the movie itself, but again, the movie does deal with all, a lot of these themes. And yeah, the one line that comes to mind is when uh, 
Miguel Ferrer's character, who's the guy Don Cheadle uh, and his buddy arrest, basically says, what's the point of all this? Mm-hmm. You're sending me to prison or making this deal with me to change exactly what? Everybody who is getting high yep. is going to keep getting high. All the drugs are yep. going to keep getting in. This is completely pointless. Your whole career is pointless. And he's exactly yes. right. Yeah, he's not wrong. Which And that exact thing happened specifically with uh, methamphetamines. So uh, methamphetamines started to become an issue. And so they, you know, the government started passing laws making it harder to get the chemicals used to make meth. Oh, that's true. Well, like Sudafed and stuff. Mm-hmm. So bigger productions, producers of meth shut down. But that's when that was like, you know, throughout the 90s and like the early 2000s, you saw mobile meth labs became like, you know, a, a relatively common thing, especially in like small town America, rural America. You have these little startups, I guess, basically little producers that could you know, have their meth labs in a, a van or a camper or something. But then the government started to crack down on those and started to further uh, restrict chemicals. And so what happened? Did, did people stop using meth? No. Did the supply of meth go down? No. What what happened? Well, uh, all the meth production got pushed south of the border. So now hmm. cartels, in addition to growing and, you know, smuggling, distributing, selling marijuana, they said, oh, well, we'll just start meth factories here. They literally, there are what are essentially factories that make meth. And so now that's, it's actually, it's a better deal for the cartels because you can charge more for a smaller amount. So like a truckload of marijuana doesn't get you as much money as a truckload of methamphetamines does. And it's, by the way, it's it's cheaper um, and it's better meth. Wow. Right. What a mess. There's no stopping it. There's no stopping it. And another thing from that TED Talks the guy talked about was that, you know, we we have this desire, I guess, to try and rid our society of drugs when he's like, if you look at history, there's never been such thing as a drug-free society. Like everyone, every major society in all of history has had some something, some sort of chemical or substance that they use to relieve stress or just have fun or, um, you know, when you look at something like peyote or, or ayahuasca, you know, it's viewed as like a spiritual experience, but there is no such thing as a drug-free society. At least there hasn't been in all of history. And right. even even our society, I mean, you know, yeah, heroin's illegal, but booze isn't, tobacco isn't, sugar isn't. Right. And so you just want to make sure that people aren't aren't abusing these substances to the point that they affect the rest of their life. But as far as trying to make everybody teetotalers for something that it's just, right. uh, it's, it's, uh, naive. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, we haven't really talked about the movie it, itself too much. It was nominated for five Oscars and won four of them. So the only one it was nominated for and didn't win was best picture. Uh, Benicio del Toro oh, really? won best actor. Steven Soderbergh won best director beating out Ridley Scott for gladiator. And then it won, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Film Editing. So very, very successful. And it was a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, that seems, that seems fair. It's a, Now, at the same time, though, too, I almost found, so it's like the color schemes he uses for the different storylines, I almost thought was yeah. distracting. Like, I, I, I get what he was going for, but it was almost like, mm-hmm. and I, actually, though, his depiction of like the Mexico storyline being that 70s looking yellow hue has almost become a yeah. joke at this point that like, that's how Americans see Mexico is with a yellow hue. Right. Yeah. And then the, how blue the 
Michael Douglas storyline was was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. It was just like it's like is that is that intended? Is that my TV? Like you wanted it that blue. So yeah, I, I get what he was going for, and it just kind of helped us keep the storyline straight. But it was almost made a little too much. I thought. Yeah, yeah, especially because then it kind of becomes confusing when you. So then there's scenes between like Catherine Zeta Jones and like Don Cheadle. It's like, well, how are you supposed to? What color correction are you supposed to use for that one? You know, when like when the storylines are actually interacting. Right. True. And uh, Soderbergh himself has always been a very interesting director. He kind of started off in the independent scene. His his breakout mm-hmm. film was Sex, Lies and Videotape, which is a super small independent film from uh, 89. But then he also went on to do Aaron Brockovich, the Oceans movies, Ocean 11, Oceans 12. He's that guy. Uh, also did uh, Logan Lucky more recently. So he's one who. He's an A-list director who's kind of always been good, though, doing projects that he wants to do. So he's not taking the paycheck to do a Marvel movie. He'd rather do just kind of these smaller movies that kind of interest him creatively. Uh, of course, then he's also the Magic Mike guy. It's, it's kind of interesting to see <laughs> his, uh, his, his resume here. So very well-respected director who lots of people like to work with. And he's definitely worked with you know some people over and over again. So... One other thing, and this actually relates more to the movie itself. In the the first scene where we see Michael Douglas, it's before he's gets his job as a czar. He's a he's a federal judge, right? And he is presiding over a uh, civil forfeiture case. And so I just kind of wanted to talk about what oh, what yeah. civil asset forfeiture yeah. is. Um, it does relate to more than just drugs, but the seizing of assets related to drug related crimes is like where you know that's like most of the of the seizures um so basically what civil asset forfeiture is is the government right the police can seize property without actually convicting or even charging you with a crime because it is not a it's not a criminal case it's not a criminal case against you it is a civil case against your property so it's literally the government is bringing a case against your house or against your car or against a sum of money um, that as you know, either the like you know were the proceeds of crime or are helping you facilitate a crime, which can seem to make sense initially if you're using your house as a meth lab. Right, it sounds good, and there are there are definitely positives that come from it. So you know, it is a way for the government to financially damage criminal enterprises. Um, they use a lot of the seized funds or proceeds from the seized funds for like victim reparations. But where it gets bad is. Number one, agencies a lot of the time are allowed to keep most or all of the proceeds from the stuff that they seize. So like, you know, a police department can seize your car or your house and then sell it. And instead of like giving the money to victims of crime, they can just use it to go buy stuff, literally whatever they want. There's basically no limitations on how agencies can spend that money. So there are there are cases of people getting money seized from them and the evidence that the government uses for why they need to seize the money is because you had a large sum of money and normal people don't carry large sums of money. Therefore that money's ours now. Right. Oh, you're, you're driving through Tennessee with $10,000 cash in your car. You must be a drug dealer going to buy a lot of drugs. So we're going to just take that money. That's happened a lot. Yes. And they're just now starting to shift the laws away from that. There's stories of people driving with cash to like go buy a car or buy whatever. And so they have a large sum of money. They get pulled over. The cops find it and they they seize it and that's that's that. There's nothing you can do about it. You don't get it back. It's not yours anymore. Yep. Right. And and it it sucks more for like you know for 
people who that don't have a lot of money because it's expensive to get a lawyer to fight the government to get your property back. So, right. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of bring that up and talk about what that because in the movie it's a, a guy gets his farm seized because there was marijuana being grown on the farm. So the government seized the the entire farm right. in a in a civil asset forfeiture, and that's like it doesn't even have to be the property of the person that was committing the crime. Like there's a story of a kid who was, he was selling meth out of his parents' house, but he got arrested. The parents weren't charged with anything, but they lost their house because the government said that they were, their house was being used to facilitate the selling of meth. So they seized the house. Right. Cause the house is now guilty. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it kind of speaks to, ancillary effects that we've kind of talked about before where just because you have this thing that seems fine on its face but then leads to this and that can be corrupted in such a way that well that's not what was intended at all but it is still the law and then it takes forever to get the political will to step up and change that i think you're just now hearing people kind of start to challenge these civil forfeiture laws so that (laughs) basically people driving through certain states aren't just literally getting robbed by the police because that's what's been happening right and the other thing too is that because it's a civil case the burden of proof is not as high. So in a criminal case, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone committed a crime. In civil forfeiture, you only have to prove... It was possible, basically. ...with what's called a preponderance of the evidence, which basically means like you're 51% sure, that just barely sure that that it is more likely that this is being used for crime than not used for crime right and who's and who's making that decision like the cops that took your money get to say yeah we think it was probably so we get well right there, in, in, yeah. in the end it it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a judge or, okay. or a jury whoever is um you know deciding the the civil case but the yeah the, the burden of proof is not is not as high as a criminal case right and you could be telling that judge the truth but if they think they're lying just because they're a skeptical person they right. keep your money and it's it's like flipped as far as a, a criminal case, because in a criminal case, you're, you know, you have the presumption of innocence, whereas in a civil forfeiture case, you have to prove that your property was not being used right. in the commission of a crime. Right. You know, because you already lost it. Like, it's already gone. The, the government already has it. Right. You have to prove that your property, you know, that or your money or whatever is innocent instead of, you know, the government proving that it was used in some sort of crime. Right. And I just, it's essentially yeah. how it works. Yeah. I just don't see how those laws are constitutional at all, but here we are because again, there's not enough, it's, it's such a small issue, relatively speaking, that there's just, again, there's just not a political will to get it shifted back to the way that would, be, that would right. be more just. And and the only thing you have to do to fight against it politically is to just show examples of how civil asset forfeiture has like, well, you know, if we didn't have that civil asset forfeiture, we couldn't have paid these victims families for the, you know, horrible crimes that were committed against them or, or right. we couldn't have, you know, we wouldn't have been able to shut down this, you know, this gang's drug operation because that those civil asset forfeiture laws is what allowed us to do that. Right. We couldn't pin it on any one person. So we had to take the building. Right. Right. So then it becomes, do you want to run on a platform that is, I guess, you know, would no, exactly. There's no political will for it. Should have a light shown on it. This that is anti anti crime. Right. Right. Or the fact that like, well, so wait, those guys are obviously drug dealers. So we need to take that money. Yeah, but they weren't committing a crime at the time, and it's not illegal to have money on you. So, yep, we have to let them go. But currently the laws are saying, nope, you can take that money. And kind of ties to the whole, I don't even know who said it back in the day, but the idea that it's better to let nine guilty people go free than to put one innocent person in prison. And so it's kind of the same kind of thing with this. Yeah, this is is kind of a, 
criminal justice thing overall, but the American criminal justice system was not designed to punish or catch guilty people. It was designed to keep innocent people out of jail. Interesting. But it fails at that. <laughs> right. But I'm, I'm saying like that a lot of people, when they think criminal justice, they oh, oh, the, the purpose right, of that right. is, to, is to catch bad guys and, and punish the bad people. Right. When in reality, yes, there, that is part of it, but it's the main point of it is to keep innocent people out. That's why you have the right to an attorney. That's why you, you know, that you have the Fifth Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. Which is fascinating that we've just twisted it to where it kind of does go the opposite and we convict innocent people on a regular basis still. Right, because it's easy to make people to make people angry and scared right. and get them to vote for you if you say that you're going to get in there and pass and support laws that are going to make all the bad people go away. Then if you say, right. well, my my stance is that I want to keep the innocent people out. I want to make sure that people are getting a fair shake and that people have right. So right. It's, that doesn't sound as safe to me personally, right. and my family. Right, right, right. Not thinking, not realizing that you could end up being a victim of that system. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay, so next week we get to a pivotal event in the United States that did have an impact in, on world history that ripples to this day, and we will get to the events of 9-11 with the film United 93. <laughs> 